Hello and welcome back to Podcast from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. I still can't get over how cold it is here in the Cape, even with the sun struggling through, though I suppose with hurriedly dressed British tourists being taken off the beaches of the island of Rhodes in Greece as raging summer fires consume literally the deck chairs at the high watermark in some places, we should be grateful for small mercies. Fortunately, LPG is in fairly plentiful supply where I am, and I've been around gas and gas bottles one way or another for most of my life, so I'm comfortable with it. Because, of course, that brief sunlit upland of no load shedding um, we were tormented with a few weeks ago is a thing, for now at least, of the past. Load shedding's back with something of a vengeance. ESCOM has developed the unfortunate habit lately of starting its load shedding announcements with the words, Quote, due to an unforeseen increase in demand. This is most annoying. First of all, it's winter and of course it's cold. How hard can it be to expect demand not to increase? Second, it's not the increase in demand that's to blame for the about-to-be-announced load shedding. It's ESCOM's inability to generate enough electricity that's the problem. It isn't that Minerals and Energy Minister Greta Mantasha was lying when he said recently, that ESCOM's energy, energy availability factor, the percentage of its kit available to generate power at any one time, was, quote, getting closer to 70%, the formal target the board has promised the nation, by the end of March 2025. Its interim target is 65% by the end of March 2024, and 60% by, well, the end of last March. Unfortunately, it missed that. Um... And the truth, though, is that a movement from zero to one would have been closer as well. Uh, and a look at ESCOM's own published EAF figures is salutary. By the end of week 28 of 2023 this year, its formal announcement said the EAF was 56.3%. Week 28 ended on Friday, July 14. In the same week last year, the EAF was 60%. And in 2021, it was 68.5%. So you get a real idea of the slide at ESCOM, and it is clearly not as easy to turn around as some of the recent publicity might have you believe. That 56.3% EAF for week 28 is a very sharp drop from the 59.1% ESCOM achieved in week 23, its best so far this year, which ended on Friday, June 9. Think back and you can sort of plot your own electricity experience against it. The fact is that plant just keeps falling over. To illustrate the scale of the problem, ESCOM normally has fewer generators down for maintenance in winter and, by now, the installation of up to 4,000 megawatts of rooftop solar in the private or domestic sector should be taking a lot of pressure off ESCOM during the day. And its core problem is the same problem every day. And so you keep blaming the same core. Fact is, units 1, 2 and 3 at Cresilia are out of action after their flue gas exhaust collapse and imperiled a 100 metre high chimney right next to the power station. That'll be done until at least November. Unit 1 at the Kuberg nuclear plant near Cape Town is down and has missed its targeted return. Unit 5 at Cresilia is also down until at least November because of a fire. The generator in Unit 4 at Madupi exploded back in 2021 and won't be replaced until at least September next year. The second unit at Coburg is due to come offline for servicing any time now, 
In all, that's about 4,500 megawatts of power simply not available. What we've been led to think we've been enjoying is a rebound in the scale and quality of engineering at ESCOM's running plant may not be that much. I'm sure there are very serious people doing very serious work at the utility to keep us going, and make no mistake, I'm grateful for every what that uh, that I get. But Jan Orbelholzer, uh, Chief Operating Officer at ESCOM until April, and until recently returned as a sort of special projects officer of sorts, dropped a bombshell, I thought, in, interview, in an interview with Alec Hogg on July the 4th. And I'll quote him. Another issue we're facing, he says, is the substantial consumption of diesel. When I was the COO, that's until the end of April, my yearly provision for diesel, diesel was 6 billion rand. In the last three months of this year, April, May and June, we spent 9 billion rand on diesel. We're burning a substantial amount of diesel. However, one advantage we have is that the demand is lower during the day, allowing us to reduce diesel consumption then. Well, I don't know if that was behind ESCOM's decision not to rehire him after all, or not. But whatever it was that the board thought important enough for him to come back and do is no longer the case, it seems. The reason can't be an improving EAF. The fact is the EAF is a moving target that measures the availability of energy over time. And at ESCOM, that is so volatile, you could indeed ask for an hourly report. And at some stage, you get a 68 percent answer at which point you could you know fling open your windows and stick your head out like a cuckoo clock and shout it out to the public but nobody would believe you it's why escom reports round about every thursday it's eaf for the previous week but spending nine billion rand on diesel in three months is an order of magnitude more than even andre de Reiter had permission to spend where's the money coming from it's a huge amount is this cheap diesel is it russian diesel Keep up this rate of diesel usage, which may not be the case eventually, because obviously we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or the week afterwards, but you could be spending closer to 40 billion rand a year on diesel than 30 billion rand, and certainly a lot more than the 23 billion rand of the last financial year. The incentive to hide the mess is understandable, and I guess even human. If plant comes back on time, the crisis really will subside. But it's hard to be confident anymore, and I felt really depressed when I read the weekly column in Business Day on Monday by the always insightful and extremely clever Stuart Theobald. He was upset with commentators, like me, I suppose, who, in his words, quote, are so overwhelmed by their availability bias that they forget history. They forget the bankrupt apartheid state, a global pariah that could not even collect taxes due to it, they forget its lack of investment grade and inability to even get meetings with global investors. The ANC in 1994 took on the task of rebuilding the public service into one that could implement its democratic mandate. It built new institutions, the National Treasury, the Constitutional Court. They forget how the economy was repaired and recovered, that corporation tax was cut from 35 to 30% and to 27% since, that the personal tax rate Fell, the top rate fell from 45 to 40%. Despite tax cuts, and to some extent because of them, says Stuart, the National Revenue Service was so effective that by 2007 the government was able to run fiscal surpluses, raise debt, 
at three notches above investment grade and simultaneously create the world's biggest welfare state to deal with the legacy of poverty left by apartheid, and that while the economy was growing at more than 5% a year. We reached a climax in 2008, when the twin calamities of the global financial crisis and the Zuma presidency abruptly changed things. The global crisis inflicted a severe economic recession, while the Zuma administration hugely degraded the apparatus of the state. The latter has constrained our recovery from the former, and despite the end of Zuma's presidency, recovery has continued to elude us. But today's commentators, he says, encouraged to pursue narratives that inflame particular political factions, get it all wrong by being overly persuaded by the near term. Our problems are not ones created by the democratic state. They've been created by particular people within it. The state itself has been capable of remarkable administrative successes and in diagnosing its ills. We must not conclude that it is not capable of better. It is, and it's done it before. I really like reading Stuart Theobald, and I make a point of doing it every week. He's passionate and he's smart. And while I don't quite understand the thinking behind availability bias, I think I know what he means. Yeah, there is always hope that we recover from our broken electricity system, our broken rail, and our broken roads, our exploding roads. We've done it as a democracy, though, but only once. We didn't do it after the financial collapse of 2008, and we haven't done it since covid And the fact is, the state now is much weaker than it was in 2008, and the ruling party is much stripped of the ability to think that it once had. This is not 1994. This is 30 years of damage later, or 20 years of damage later. We're simply not the country anymore that grew a budget surplus. Yes, you can step back, or even outside the country itself, and view it through the long lens of distance, and even history. But then you also have to be brutally honest and see our recovery as both a cultural and economic phenomenon that's going to take decades, not just the action of a few or many bad apples in power. What's happening to South Africa has been, I think, centuries in the making. It's a place simply where trust inside our society is extremely low. For whatever reason, and who, for whoever is to blame. We will become a different country with a different outlook over time. Anyone now over 50 years old will probably not live to see the benefits of a South Africa truly at peace with itself. It'll happen, but it's not going to happen soon. That said, I've got some good news for the good citizens of the Western Cape, anxious that their ruling provincial party, the Democratic Alliance, the um, plucky official opposition may wobble provincially in the elections next year. New polling, though, by the Social Research Foundation puts the DA's popularity in the province on pretty solid ground. In polling, um, this is by Victory Research for the uh, SRF, in polling 2,590 people in the Western Cape between the end of May and the beginning of July, Respondents were asked whether they thought the DA, quote, cares about my community, it understands the needs of my community and takes them seriously. 62% of respondents strongly or somewhat strongly agreed, including 77% of coloured respondents and 89% of whites. Same can't be said of black respondents, though 63% strongly or somewhat 
strongly disagreed. When asked, quote, if general elections were taking a place today, which party would you vote for on your national ballot paper, model for a 66% turnout, 55% said the DA, 15% said the EFF, and 8% said each year for the ANC, the Patriotic Alliance. That would be a massive showing for the EFF and a seriously disappointing one for Gayton McKenzie's Patriotic Alliance, which is quoting a sort of nationalist coloured vote that for the moment the DA's delivery record may be holding at bay. Some 62% of coloured respondents said they would vote DA and only 15 for the PA. But like everything in South Africa, it's a snapshot of a moment and things change really fast here. And that's that's it from me this week. Let's not forget how lucky we are to live in a free society and an open democracy. It stays that way if we value it all enough and show it at the ballot box next year. Take care, try to keep warm, and I'll be back again next week. Bye-bye.